what an amazing and wonderful thing it is to know the love of God, love of God which far surpasses all the power in the world which he has shown to us and shed upon us and given to us through his only begotten son. Here is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The power of eternal love that glows within our hearts is surely that which motivates us this morning to honor and adore him. Thank you for being here to do just that today as we come before his throne and in his presence demonstrate our adoration to him in these acts of worship. I thank you for participating in those songs, for remembering our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ uh, in the uh, Lord's Supper and the communion, for praying, and now for listening to his word for a while as we think about not the love that he has given to us, but the love that we rebound to him in return for what he's given to us. Because surely the powerful love of God that he has uh, just showered upon us, that he has shown us through his son, surely that demands a powerful response from us. The most powerful response, in fact. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34. When Jesus says some of the most challenging and demanding things that he ever said, we think of Jesus, of course, as uh, love and kindness leading us in a way that uh, is, is good and right and uh, something that we find comfort in him. In fact, he tells us to come to him if we're weary and heavy laden and he'll give us rest. And that's the Jesus we like to think about. There's a lot to Jesus, though. And these are some words that really, really challenge us. So listen as he says to us in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have, not, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He is calling upon us to lose his life in his love and in his service. Lose our lives, I should say, in his love and in his service. He's calling upon us to love him more than anyone or anything. He is telling us that unless we do that in response to his love, unless we do that, we cannot be his followers. For he loved us just that much. He loved us more than all. And we must love him more than all. I can tell you that if you took this passage to heart and you go home to your family after services today, or maybe just out of the blue one day especially, and you Go to your wife. I can imagine me going to Sandy and saying, I heard Tom Holly talk about this last week, by the way, in, in this way. And he said, just imagine, you go to your wife. I go, go to Sandy and I say, honey, I have something to tell you. It's really important. She says, okay, what is it? Tell me. I say, well, it's going to be hard to tell you. Tell you. You're not going to like it. She says, please tell me. I say, okay. I love somebody more than you. You're on the list but I love somebody more than you. <laughs> you can imagine how that's going to go over, right? <laughs> well, she's going to want to know 
first of all, where am I on the list? <laughs> and secondly, who's number one, right? Who's above me on this list? Or two if I'm three, or three if I'm four, or whoever. Who's above me on that list? But that is exactly what Jesus is calling us to do, isn't it? Think of the ones who are dearest to you, your, your spouse, your parents, your children, your grandchildren. And Jesus is saying, love me more. Love me more than whoever it is or whatever it is that you think you love the most. What a challenge. But that is the depth of God's love for us. And it is what is proper to give to him. With that in mind, I'm going to use an example of this that only came to my mind this last week, but I think it really illustrates this kind of love. Where you don't love your family the most, but you love God the most. I want to talk to you about a character from the Old Testament, a character that we'll be studying this quarter in our uh, going through the Bible classes, but his name is Jonathan. King Saul's son, Jonathan, he is a great example of someone who loved God more than his family. Jonathan loved God's anointed king, King David, as we must love our king, who is the Christ, the son of David. Jonathan is one of, I think, the real undervalued, underappreciated characters of the Old Testament. His life is overshadowed in his time by the lives of Saul and David, the first two kings of Israel. Their lives were intertwined with his own, however. And in his life, Jonathan had a choice to make between the evil influences of his proud and selfish father, whose heart was disobedient to God and bent on harming others, he had a choice to make between his father, Saul, or Jonathan could choose to follow God and a man who is after God's own heart, the coming king of Israel. Three times in 1 Samuel, it is said that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. And in loving David, Jonathan was loving God because God loved David. And David was God's choice, and so David was, was Jonathan's choice. That's what we want to look at this morning. And just notice a few things in this. We'll study it more in our classes in the weeks to come. But just notice a few things in this narrative that, that help us understand what it means to love God and his king more than our own family. So think about, first of all, some contrasts between Saul and Jonathan, the kind of people that they were. If we go to 1 Samuel chapter 13, uh, the Philistines had gathered at Michmash. Saul was at Gilgal in this text. And Saul was waiting for Samuel to come to make an offering, but Samuel didn't show up in time, he didn't think. So Saul went ahead and made an offering a burnt offering to the Lord before entering into this battle. It was an unlawful offering. It was not offered according to the prescribed order that was given to the Israelites. And soon 
Samuel arrives and explains to Saul what he's done. Samuel condemns Saul for this foolish act, this impetuous act, and informs him that his kingdom is going to be taken away from him. Look with me now in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now I might tell you that most of us who know the story of Saul do not associate this incident with his rejection by God. That happens in most people's minds when he refused to destroy the Amalekites a couple of chapters later. We'll get to that in a minute. But this is way before that. This is way before that. And Saul demonstrates his unfitness to be king and to be the man that God has leading his people because he won't sacrifice to God in the way that God has required, in the way that God has asked. Samuel tells him, you've done foolishly. And God is going to reject you, reject your house as the, the dynasty over Israel, and put in your place a man, he says, who is better than you, man after God's own heart. I might say that from this time forward, it is very likely that not only Saul, but others in his inner circle knew that this was the case. I'm sure Samuel did not tell this to him in private. And I would suspect, though don't know for sure, that Jonathan would be one who knew what was coming. Saul certainly knew what was coming. Meanwhile, the Philistines have encroached upon Israel again, and Jonathan proves himself as not only a valiant warrior, but one who trusts the Lord in everything. <clears throat> the, the Philistines are up on a rock, a garrison of the Philistines, and uh, Jonathan is aware of this, and he basically says to his armor bearer, let's go take them. Just, just you and me, let's go. And his armor bearer says, well, okay. And so you see in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 14 now, there are these passes where the Philistines were, uh, and in verse 4, there was a garrison of them there, and there was a sharp rock, and it was apparently quite steep. And Jonathan says to his young man who bore his armor, this is verse 6 of chapter 14, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. What confidence Jonathan has in God. God's way will work. God's power will work. I will trust God. And so... Jonathan and his armor bearer go up this rock, and as they go up, it's about uh, not even a full acre of land that we're talking about. As he goes up, he encounters one Philistine after another, and basically as he comes to each Philistine, he strikes him down to the ground, and his armor bearer kills the Philistine as he's stricken down to the ground before him, up to 20 guys that they kill going up this rock. And as a consequence of that, the Philistines are in terror 
that there's a mighty warrior now assaulting them. And the cascade of events follows, and the Philistines are chased away, and now the armies of Israel are emboldened, and they chase after the Philistines. And Saul realizes that he has the advantage, although he's not really sure why or how. But he makes an oath. This is now chapter 14 and verse 24. The men of Israel were distressed that day. They were pursuing the Philistines. The men of Israel were distressed that day. For Saul had placed the people under an oath saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Now you can imagine, anybody knows that an army travels on its stomach, right? That's, that's just an old, well-known thing. But Saul is saying, no, none of you can eat anything until we win this battle. That's just, that's as bad as Jephthah. You want to talk about, we're going to see another really, really bad oath that, that Solomon makes. And it just shows his selfishness, his pride, his lack of trust in God and God's ways, and his lack of wisdom, frankly. Jonathan doesn't know that this oath has been made by his father, the king. And so he's coming along and he sees some, sun, some honey uh, and, and puts his staff into it and starts licking it and gets some nourishment of that. And, oh, the people say, oh, wait, we're, we're under a curse. We can't eat anything. And, and, and Jonathan responds to that. If you look down on, the, on in the text, and he says in 1 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 29, my father has troubled the land. Look how my countenance has brightened because... I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they, which they found. We see, again, contrast between the wisdom of Jonathan and the problems that Saul had. A little later in this story, Saul recognizes that the Lord isn't answering him. Saul wants to pursue the Philistines a little bit further. He ask of the Lord. He doesn't hear anything back from the Lord. He thinks there must be some kind of sin in the camp. Something's gone wrong. And so uh, what Saul basically says is, well, whoever's caused this problem uh, has got to die. Doesn't matter who it is or what they've done, they've got to die. Well, he figures out, or he thinks he does at least, casting of lots, that Jonathan has eaten something. Even though Jonathan didn't know that his father had made, he'd eaten some of that honey. And so it comes down and basically Saul says, okay, Jonathan's got to die. We're going to kill Jonathan because he ate some honey, even though he didn't know he was supposed to. And even though it was a really foolish command that I made, still, Jonathan's got to die. And the people, as the story continues, basically rescue Jonathan from his father's foolishness. In 1 Samuel 14 and verse 45, the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. Notice what the people understood that Saul did not understand. That all of this, Jonathan was working with God. Saul, not so much. Jonathan was going to work with God. And you see this really throughout his life. This is just some of the 
story of Jonathan's greatness. But as I said, he's just a great man. And he's going to work with God no matter how foolishly his father is behaving, what horrible things his father does. Jonathan is, at this point, fully committed to doing God's things and God's ways and trusting God. As the story continues on, God, of course, rejects Saul. It's already indicated he's rejected him. But he anoints David or has David anointed as king. In 1 Samuel 15, uh, Saul rebels against God in failing to destroy the Amalekites. We mentioned this earlier, but it doesn't occur until this point. And Samuel comes to him and, and tells him that he has disobeyed God, that what he has done is worse than witchcraft. He might as well just be practicing witchcraft than to disobey God in this way. But to listen to God is more important than sacrificing animals and all of the things, all the excuses that Saul was giving for not obeying God in utterly destroying the Amalekites. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel informs Saul then that he's been rejected as king again. Samuel says to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, now in verse 26, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom from Israel of Israel from you today, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. God has given someone who is better than you, your kingdom. It is torn. And so now twice, Saul has been informed, your kingdom will not be yours. You will not have a dynasty. Your children will not have kingship over God's people because of your acts, because of what you have done. And as I said, you have to just suspect that more than Saul would have known this. Samuel then is sent in chapter 16 to anoint young David to be the future king. And you remember the, the story, fascinating story. God tells Samuel to go find a son of Jesse to the house of Jesse, and there would be there anointed the king of Israel, the future king of Israel. And Jesse has all of these sons. He has seven that appear one by one before Samuel. And God says, each one, not the one, not the one, not the one. And Samuel says to Jesse, don't you have another son? Is there somebody else? And, well, the kid's out in the field, you know, we could we'd call him in. We'll call him in. We're, we're not going to sit until this last son comes in and David comes in. And the text tells us, well, he's good looking. He's ruddy. That's the, the red appearance. And the Lord, tells, the Lord tells Samuel, this is the one. This is the man after my own heart. This is the one who is better than Saul. I think that's all included in this is the one. The Lord said to Samuel, arise, anoint him. This is the one. 1 Samuel 16 and verse 12. In verse 13, Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. The spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. At that point then, David enters the service of Saul as a court musician because disturbing spirit had come upon Saul and David would play music
to comfort him. I'm leaving off as we tell this story, the big parts of it that most of you know. Left off most of the story of the Amalekites. Going to leave off most of the story of David and Goliath. But most of you know that. This big Philistine giant is challenging the armies of Israel day by day. Goes on day by day. David becomes aware of it. And it winds up that David slays the giant. And he comes back by the power of God, slays the giant. And he comes back with the head of Goliath. This is a little bit of the story we may not follow, but uh, the last part of chapter 17, he comes back to Saul with the head of Goliath, if you can imagine such a gruesome thing. And basically, here's the giant, you know, that was threatening Israel, that was threatening the armies of God and the God of heaven. And he talks to Saul, and of course, Saul is well pleased with the victory. Jonathan apparently is there present seeing all that David has accomplished, David's trust in God. When he approached the giant, he had said, you know, you you come to me with all of this weaponry and warfare. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Jonathan sees all of that. He recognizes, I think from this point, but certainly a little bit later, if not at this point, that David is the one. And Jonathan is knit to the soul of David. Go with me now to 1 Samuel chapter 18. When David had finished speaking to Saul, chapter 18 and verse 1, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. This was not just some, you know, star football player loving another star football player for for scoring the touchdown. That's not what this was. This was not one soldier just loving another soldier because he led the troops in a victory. This was a man who understood who David was, I think, at this point. And if not now, certainly in a few moments we'll see that. But Jonathan loved David. And we'll see, I think, that he really loved David more than his father because he loved God more than his father. Jonathan does something astounding here, which really symbolizes what he understood at this point. The text tells us in verse 2, Saul took him that day, that is, Saul took David, and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. And Jonathan and David made a covenant. We're not told what the covenant is, but we kind of know something about it a little later. Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan is the king's son. One would assume heir to the throne. One would assume that his armor, this princely armor, signified all of that. And Jonathan takes it all off and gives it to David. I wonder what that covenant was between them. I think we might know. Jonathan loves David and gives him his armor. 
as a sign of his love and devotion to him. And from this day forward, Jonathan is wholly devoted to the coming king. We see it over and over again as he protects David from his father, Saul. Jonathan supports, protects, and loves David as the future king. Later, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, David and Jonathan make a covenant to protect David from Saul's evil intention. Saul's trying to kill him over and over and over again. Part of that covenant was that David would be good to Jonathan and Jonathan's house no matter what happened. I want you to look at 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse 14. I want you to see what is necessarily implied in part of this covenant. Jonathan and David again either renew or make a covenant here where Jonathan is pr promising to protect David, to warn him of his father's evil intentions. But he says in 1 Samuel 20 and verse 14, You shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. What does Jonathan know about David? Jonathan knows that he is the one that God is going to, through him, conquer all of the enemies of Israel. And Jonathan is saying, as a part of this covenant I'm making with you, you're the guy, the Lord is with you, conquest will be yours. I'm just asking you, as you kill all of your enemies and kill all that the Lord wants you to destroy, don't destroy my house with it. That was part of the covenant. But Jonathan knows. He knew it before. That's why I think he knew it all the way back in chapter 18. But certainly he knows here who David is. Jonathan made a choice. He made a choice to love God, to love God's anointed more than, more than anything, more than anyone. At Jonathan's death, David says, and Jonathan died battling the Philistines. David says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. Jonathan loved David more. He loved him more than he loved his father more than he loved women, his wife, whoever, I assume. And David loved him back. I wonder if Jonathan ever had that conversation with his wife. Honey, I've got something to tell you. I love you, but I love somebody else more. I love God more. You can see it in his choice. Jonathan chose to love who God loved and chose to love God. And that brings me to this. You and you alone are responsible for choosing to love God more. Your affections are yours to control. You choose who you love and to what degree you love them.
your father's diet must not determine the taste in your mouth. What do I mean? Well, I mean what God meant when he spoke in Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel 18 and verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Don't say that anymore because it's not true. You ever, can you imagine, you know, put some sour grapes or I, th I think of a really bad dill pickle or something in your mouth and some lemon and you, you put that, put a big lemon in your mouth and wow, that makes you pucker and everything goes, start crying and everything, it just gets you. But imagine, you, you, the father does that and then the son gets that taste in his mouth. Well, that doesn't happen. That's not going to happen. That's not how it works. The, the father's actions, he bears the consequences of his action. The son bears the consequences of his actions. And God is at pains uh, in Ezekiel 18, speaking through Ezekiel, to explain that to him and to us. So look at Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 18 now. I'm not going to read all of it. But that's what this whole text is about. Listen to Ezekiel 18 and verse 18. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence, did what is not good according to the people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Your father's guilt is not your guilt and nor his, his righteousness, your righteousness. That is critical for people to understand, to be able to make this choice. Who are you going to love more? Your, your, your parents, your spouse, your children will not get you to heaven. Your relationship with God will. Your relationship with God is heaven. To be in his presence is what heaven is all about. You must love him more. You must love him more. We talked in our class this morning out here, and I imagine some of the other classes talked about that this time in which Jonathan lived and just leading up to it was a time in which Eli and Samuel had shown favoritism to their sons and turned a blind eye to their sins. And Israel had suffered horrendous consequences as a result of that. Jonathan, in this same time period, is a shining light in the darkness, respecting his father to be sure, but giving his allegiance, his devotion, his affection, and his love to the Lord. Choosing to love the Lord more. Everyone in this room is going to stand as an individual before God. There's a song we sing sometimes, stand with all, but stand alone. That's how it's going to be before God. Each of us shall give account of himself to God. 
there are those who rise above their raising. Many of you in this room probably have risen above your raising. You might not have been raised by godly parents. Many of us were raised by godly parents and haven't risen to the level of our raising. But the choice is ours either way. The choice is ours either way. In some cases, there are people sitting in this room who had very, very godly parents, devoted to the Lord, who loved the Lord more than everything. And you have chosen rather to love the world or to love family or to love money or to love material success more. Jeremiah talks about that. Jeremiah 16 and verse 12, you've done worse than your fathers. Each of you follows the dictates of your own heart. So what were we saying? Yes, it's completely possible to do much better than your parents if they did poorly, if they were unrighteous, ungodly. It's equally possible to do much worse if they were godly people, if they served the Lord and loved the Lord and you just haven't concerned yourself with doing the same. But either way, this morning, the choice is yours. You choose who you're going to love more. And Jesus says, you must love me more than these. That was the question that he asked Peter. That's what he said to us in Matthew 10. We must love him more than these. I beg you to make that choice. Jesus is begging you to make that choice. To love him most of all. If you're willing to do that and name his name and give your life to him, he said, whoever saves his life, whoever saves his life will lose it for my sake. Give your life to him. Please come while we stand and sing.